Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. Hope everybody's doing good. Thunderstorms don't keep this crowd away. We got a good group tonight. That's good. We have thunderstorms rolling through the area, but it doesn't bother any of you. So that's good. Good to see all of you and looking forward to the study of God's Word tonight. John chapter 12, as we're going through a portrait of Jesus, what it uh, means to, uh, to get a picture of Christ based on what he said. And uh, we've been looking at each of the chapters. We're going to make it to chapter 12 or 21 chapters. And so this will take us uh, all the way until February the 2nd by the time we take the holiday break in there at Christmas time. Uh, and Thanksgiving as well. And so February 2nd will be when we end up. And then the following week, uh, following Wednesday night, we'll start in the Re book of Revelation. Uh, that'll be February the 9th that we'll start that. And that will be chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But we've made it to chapter 12 tonight of, uh, of John. And so take out your Bibles, grab your devices if you have those. We're looking, of course, as we do each week at the ESV version. Let's pray together. And we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for how it is powerful. It is sharp. It's a two-edged sword. And every time we study it, every time we read it, God, it is you speaking to us. And so I pray tonight that you would speak in a powerful way as we read about Jesus, his triumphal entry, and the words that he said about his impending death. God, would you teach us tonight? Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Letter A on your outline, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Now, tonight, if you could summarize chapter 12 with one question, it would be, what does the death of Jesus mean? What does the impending death of Jesus mean? And so we're going to look at that, and that's what the chapter is literally all about. And the key word in the chapter is believe. That's the word that you're going to see over and over as Jesus talks about his impending death. Now, we are to chapter 12 of John, and we reach the final week of Jesus' life. Now, think about that. You have 21 chapters of a person's life that's recorded, and, and from chapter 12 to chapter 21 is just one week out of that life. He lived 33 years. He did a lot. But, but 12, chapters 12 to 21, all one week. Imagine if somebody was writing your life story and half of the book was about one week of your life. Well, that would be a pretty significant week, wouldn't it? And so now we have arrived at the final week of Jesus' life. It's six days before his death, uh, six days before Passover, as chapter 1, verse 1 tells us. Uh, so let's look at chapter uh, 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Now, we know exactly what kind of dinner it was and when it was because of the Greek word dinner. There in verse 2. We just say, well, dinner could be any day. No, no. It was the Greek word is dipnon that's used, which was a specific meal. It was the evening meal of Saturday night, which is a very special meal. It wasn't just any meal. It was a very special meal. And so Saturday night meal, we know when it was. We're, we're told it was a, the dipnon, which was a significant time for Jews to gather for a very significant event. So what were they celebrating they were celebrating Lazarus being alive. Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus decided, let's have Jesus 
over for dinner. Let's, uh, uh, let's, let's eat together, celebrate together because Lazarus has come back from the dead. So verse 2, they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, I used to get in trouble for reclining at the table whenever I was a kid. My mom would say, sit up and eat. I know I'd lay this way and lay that way. What did it mean reclining at the table? Well, in Jewish days, they ate significant meals on couches. And so they would eat with, you would, there would be a couch there and you would actually lie back on the couch. Most people were right-handed, so you would lean on your left elbow, hold your food in your left hand, and you would actually, your feet would be on the couch and you literally would lie down and you would eat. And so that was, the relaxed nature showed the importance of the meal. And so if you can picture that, that's the, the scenario, a lot of couches around, Jesus would have been reclining, uh, eating, Lazarus was as well. That's what we're told in verse 2, that he was reclining with Jesus at the table. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, let's stop there for a moment and, and see what's going on. Usually, whenever someone entered the home and you were a guest in those days, they did two things. If you were coming for a meal, if you were having me over for dinner, and I walked into your house, you immediately did two things. You would, you would have a servant come and wash my feet because the roads were dusty, they weren't paved, uh, you wore open-toed shoes, they wore sandals, the feet got just incredibly dirty, it's hot, rocky, those of you been there, you understand, uh, and so your feet were filthy, and so a servant would come and wash your feet for you, and then they would dab on a little bit of perfume, so you smell good for the evening. You would maybe walk in the hot temperatures, very hot over in Israel, you would sweat, Maybe you would, wouldn't smell too good, and so they would wash your feet, dab on maybe just a drop or two of oil or perfume, like our cologne, uh, that the fragrance would, you would smell better for the evening, and it would be an enjoyable evening. Well, this time, Mary, showing her love for Jesus, did something different. She took a very expensive 11 ounces, the Greek word is liter that's used there, English says a pound, it was basically a 11 ounces, and, and so she took all of this very expensive oil, and she would break the neck of it, and then she just, once you broke the neck of it, you can't contain it in anything else, you have to use it all. And so she meant to do that, she broke the neck of the flask. And she poured it over Jesus' feet and over his hair. What was she doing? She was taking the place of a servant. She was washing his feet, not with water, but with expensive perfume. And not with a towel, but with her hair. And then she covered his head, not just with a drop or two, but with all of the perfume. She was showing her love to him in a lavish, expensive, costly way in a servant's humility's humility form. Now, 
couple of thoughts here is kind of interesting as you look at this story. First of all, nard is a, there's, it's still there. It's a plant that grows. It's in the honeysuckle family, really. Uh, nard is a plant that grows in the Himalayas, Nepal, China, India, still used as a fragrance. Uh, and the roots of it, the, they call the roots spikes, you can imagine. Roots look like spikes, don't they? And so it's the nard plant, so it's the spike nard would be the roots of the plant because it looks like, the roots look like spikes. And so it's called spike nard, and it's very, it has an aroma to it. Uh, it's mentioned two or three times in Scripture, mentioned in Song of Solomon, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, he mentions it in there as well. A lot of ancient writings mention spikenard because it was very common to be used as a fragrance and still is today in, in India, China, and Nepal. So, so she took this spikenard, and what was interesting was she wiped his feet with her hair. That's significant. Because women would not unbind their hair in those days. They kept it up. Uh, if you ever loosen your hair or, or unbound it where it would fall, fall uh, free, freely uh, in public, that meant that you might be a woman of loose morals, loose character. So to show your integrity or your pride, your character, you would keep it up. So it's her way of saying that she's throwing all pride away in anointing the feet of Jesus. But here's something else that's interesting. Mary and Martha did not have husbands. They lived with their, their brother Lazarus. If a woman in biblical days did not have a husband, it was hard for her to make a living. They depended upon husbands. They were not equal citizens in, the, in those days. It was a, a, a patriarchal society, not a matriarchal. So, so everything flowed through the lineage of, of the men and the husbands. And so if you were a woman without a husband, you, you were usually destitute. You were poor. You, you, were, you were just living hand to mouth. And so here is Mary who has ointment that is equal to one year's salary. What would that be today? The average salary in America is $51,900, $52,000 bottle of perfume. She's going to live on that. She, she's got to make a living somehow. That would be her provision for a year. And she took it and poured it all out on Jesus. Wow. That's pretty significant what she did. She was thankful for her brother's healing, and she knew him to be Messiah. And she was worshiping with her hair and with the ointment. Now look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, that was a year's salary, and given to the poor? That's what it was worth. It was worth a year's salary. And then John adds a parenthetical statement about Judas in verse 6. Listen to it. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, hold on a second. We have a revelation here that we didn't know. We didn't know Judas was a thief. 
Well, nobody knew that. So, so John is writing in 85 AD. Jesus crucified 30 AD. It's been 55 years. And, and now as he looks back, he saw Judas was a thief. He was embezzling funds. He was, taking, he was dipping into the till. He was taking money out. He was stealing from them. Now remember, Judas was the treasurer of the 12 disciples. He's the money keeper. We didn't know he was taking money out of the till. John said he was. They didn't know it at the time. How do you know they didn't know it at the time? Look at what happened. First of all, you don't make somebody a treasurer if you know they're a thief. That's the last person you make the treasurer. But second of all, later on at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you is a thief and is going to betray me. And not, none of them went, Judas! They all went, who, who could it be, Lord? I don't see any suspects among this group. Is it me? And I didn't know who it was. So we know for certain when this happened, they did not know he was stealing money from them. But John, writing 55 years later, wrote in here, by the way, the dude is a thief. He'd been stealing money. We just didn't know it. And so he mentions what Judas said. Judas said, why? why that, that's being wasteful, Mary. Why did you pour that ointment on Jesus? And he said it not because he cared about the ointment, but he cared about the money. Isn't it interesting that every time you try to do something for the Lord, somebody's there to criticize? You probably, those of you here tonight, you are, you are some of the ones who are here all the time. You serve. You serve in many different areas. I would venture to say some of you have received criticism from close friends or family members about the way maybe you serve. Because whenever you give Jesus your best, you're going to get criticism, period. Because people don't understand it. They don't understand. Why, why would you give ointment? Why would you, a year's worth of salary, why would you give that? Why would you give so much money to the church? Why do you give as much as you do? Why do you spend as much time at the church as you do? People don't understand. But when you give your best to Christ, you'll be criticized. And so was Mary. But notice who criticized her. Someone who also followed Christ. Sometimes your biggest critics are other believers. Judas was the one that criticized. And Jesus' response was, boy, you're right, Judas. No, look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, hold on a second. We can read back into this story because we know what's coming. His death is and his resurrection. But they didn't know. So imagine they're all sitting around. It's the main meal of the week. They're having, it's a meal of honor. And this Mary does this and Judas is angry with her. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's preparing me for burial. They probably all would have gone, what did he just say? Burial? Is, is he going to die? The Messiah is not going to die. What's he talking about? 
burial. That's an odd statement. Did you hear what? I think that's what he said. That would be an odd phrase to make at this moment. And it was. And then verse 8, Jesus said, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You can take care of the poor anytime you want, but you'll only have a, you'll only have a limited amount of time to do good things for me. Because he, of course, would be, would be leaving soon. Go to letter B on your outline. The plot to kill Lazarus. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus is becoming somewhat of a celebrity. I mean, oh my goodness, it's, oh, there's the woman Jesus raised from the dead. And so it's, it's, he's starting to become somewhat of a celebrity. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here's what was happening. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A lot of Jews saw it and then saw Lazarus. Knew he was dead for four days. Saw him. And because of what Jesus did, they believed in Jesus. And so the religious leaders thought, man, this Lazarus guy, he is... We've got to get rid of the evidence. And so they plan not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. Because if he can get rid of the evidence, he can no longer tell everybody what happened. And because of him, many people were starting to believe in Christ. So the religious leaders said that we've concluded we've got to terminate both of them. We're killing Jesus, and we need to kill Lazarus. Now, I mentioned last week... John chapter 11, that, that John is the only gospel writer out of all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's the only one that recorded the raising of Lazarus. Remember that? And we talked about one theory is the reason Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, did not record it is it was possible Lazarus was still alive when they wrote their gospels. He would not have been alive when, when John wrote, so there's nothing to, to, to harm Lazarus by recording this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's very possible. Had they recorded it, elevated Lazarus again, the authorities, uh, and once again get on Lazarus' trail and try to kill him. And so maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke were trying to protect him while he was still alive. John now writes because he's, he's already dead. But for whatever reason, he mentions here the fact that the religious leaders were trying to get rid of him. And there was a plot, not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus. We let her see on your outline the triumphal entry, verses 12 through 19. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, as you know, this is the triumphal entry. Let's look at a couple of details about it before we move on. 
First of all, this is one event that all four gospel writers record. All four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of us, all of them tell us about the triumphal entry. So it must have been something meaningful to them. You and I look at it and go, okay, it's a part of the, it's part of Easter. But to them, it's something more significant. To them, it was proof Jesus was the Messiah. Because it was prophesied in the Old Testament how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem to reign. And that's exactly what happened. And so they record it as another proof text that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Now, question has been asked, where did the large crowd gather? Will it be Passover? Then if the crowd wanted Jesus dead on Friday, why would so many of them be singing his praises just a few days before that? Isn't that odd? And it is odd. But remember, Passover time, people came from all over Israel. That meant there would be a large contingent of people from Galilee up in the northern region, hour and a half away. That's it. Galilee's the countryside, Jerusalem city. And there would be a lot of people from the country, Galilee, coming to the Passover who would have known Jesus for three and a half years because that's where he lived. They would have loved him. They would have followed him. So they were in town for Passover. So no doubt the crowd who was yelling his praises were probably the Galileans from the country who had come to town for Passover. So the large crowd gathered at the feast and they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know how many date palm trees there are. There are date palms everywhere. Big old leafy uh, uh, leaves that are on them. They're large. And so the Israelites would take these large date palm branches and they would wave them. It was a very common practice, still is today in Israel, a very common practice in those days for celebrations. And so they would wave the palms. And it started going all the way back to the intertestament period between the Old Testament and New Testament. If you remember the story of Judas Maccabeus, the old priest that rose up and killed a the soldiers at the altar because they sacrificed a pig. And if you remember the, the Maccabean revolt, and it was during that time period, they started waving palm branches as far as celebrations go. So they'd been doing it for 165, 170 years by the time Jesus came on. It was a way of showing a celebration. It was a national symbol by the time of the Roman war came, 66 AD. It was a national symbol of waving palm branches to show joy at something happening in Israel. And so they showed their joy at Jesus coming into the city as Messiah by waving the palm branches. And it had messianic overtones to it. They knew he was the Messiah and that's why they were celebrating. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. I always thought Hosanna meant praise the Lord. It doesn't. All the time I was growing up as a kid, I thought Hosanna meant hallelujah. No, no, it was a part of the hallel. Psalm 113 to 118, from which we get the word hallelujah. But it doesn't mean hallelujah. It means save us. It's a cry for help, like you're drowning. 
And so in the minds of the Jews, they're wanting the Messiah to throw off these hated Romans. And they're yelling as the Messiah gets there, save us from these Romans. And that's the purpose of the palm branches. He who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a messianic phrase. So all of this meant the Messiah's here and we're giving him a celebration. So they've gone from a private dinner now to a public parade. Now the Roman soldiers would have been watching this Hosanna and they would have been snickering. Why? Because the Roman celebration was much grander than this. They were going, probably going, look at these Jews. That's the best they can do. A donkey. Because they rode horses because that meant victory. When you rode a donkey, that was humility. It was peace. We're coming in peace. But when you rode a horse, it meant victory. And so the Romans, anytime they won a victory where they took land or killed at least 5,000 people, they would have a ticker tape parade. And they would ride a horse in, and the crowds would gather, and they would yell, you know, the victor to the Romans. And, and it would be a huge parade, and they would take the ones that had been captured as prisoners of war, and they would drag them to the streets, and it would end at the arena where they would have to fight the wild beasts to their death. And the people would cheer. It was a big crowd. It was a big celebration. And so the Roman soldiers had to be snickering at this, going, what kind of... What kind of celebration? You're riding a donkey and you wave a palm branch. And so the Roman soldiers must have been snickering as Jesus rode triumphantly into the city. They wouldn't sneak, snicker about a week or ten days later, would they, when he had resurrected. So the triumphal entry in Jesus had fulfilled Zechariah 9, 9, it says in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's Colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when he was glorified, what that mean? Resurrected. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So at the time it's going on, they don't get it. They think they do, but they don't. But after the resurrection, the pieces started to fit, and they got it. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. I can just hear this. Oh, I was there. I remember whenever he raised Lazarus. Oh, yeah, I remember. I was there. And they continued to bear witness to what had happened. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they'd heard he had done this sign. Remember that John uses the word sign for miracle. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Pharisees throwing their hands up. Everybody's following Jesus. We've got to figure out a way to get rid of him. Now go to letter D on your outline, verse 20 through 26, some Greeks seek Jesus. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now who are these Greeks? 
Well, the New Testament usually refers to anybody who is not a Jew as a Greek. So it could be any Gentiles. Any, anybody. Anybody that's a non-Jew. It could have been, they could have been from anywhere. They could have been, it could have been any, any non-Jew. We're not really told who they were. But they went to Philip and they said, sir, we want to see Jesus. That's a great way to seek the Lord, isn't it? We want to see Jesus. I preached a revival at a church a number of years ago, and I went up to preach, and, and I didn't see it until I got up there, but there's a very small, on the pulpit, there's a very small uh, phrase that was written. put my Bible down on my notes, getting ready to preach the first service, and it just simply had that one phrase, Sir, we want to see Jesus. That's pretty good, isn't it? Whenever you stand up to preach, that's who you need to see. So that's a great statement. Sir, we want to see Jesus. And they answered him, verse 23, or rather verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's an odd response. Now let's look at what he was saying. So, so the picture was some non-Jews came up to Andrew, knowing he was Jewish and a follower, or rather Philip, knowing that he was a follower of Jesus, said, we want to see Jesus. And so he went to Andrew, and they both, Andrew and Philip, went to Jesus and said, Jesus, some, some people want to see you. They're not Jews. They, they, they're, they're Greeks, but they want to see you. And his response was not, okay, or sure, I'll see them. His response was, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's an odd phrase, isn't it? Why did he say that? Well, when the Gentiles were asking for him, he knew it was time to give his life. Because he died not only for Jews, but for the Gentiles. You see, folks, Jesus belongs to the whole world. When Gentiles came and we want to see him, he says, it's time, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Interesting in the Greek language, in the syntax that's used there, when it says the hour has now come, it's in the perfect tense. Which means, the translation is, the hour has arrived and will be here from now on that the Son of Man's glorified. Interesting that John used the perfect tense to show it wasn't just a one-time event. The hour had come and has lasting results into eternity. What Christ did is for everybody of all nations for all time. What he was talking about was his death. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. If you take a seed and drop it in the ground, it's going to produce a harvest, but the harvest looks nothing like the seed. And you're not going to get the harvest unless you bury the seed. You can't just have a seed in your hand and hope that a tree grows someday. You, you have to bury it. And so Jesus used the same analogy. I'm going to die and be buried and, and there will be a new fruit that results that looks different than anything else. It will be a glorified body. It will last forever. 
And there'll be eternal life that you can't get anywhere else. It's going to look different. But the seed's got to die. You can't just hold it. It has to be buried, which he was. Now, remember, (laughs) they have no clue what he's talking about. We do. We get it. They're going, what's he talking about? Seed, die, buried? They have no clue. They They don't know what he's talking about. And then Jesus said, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What did he mean if anybody serves me, they need to follow me too? What did he mean by that? Isn't it? Is it possible to serve without following? Yeah. It's possible for you to volunteer at the Friendship House and never be a follower of Jesus. And you're counting your service as following Christ. No, service is different than following. Sir, we we follow first and then we serve. Is it possible to get it reversed and we serve but we don't follow? Absolutely. People do it all the time. They serve. They'll volunteer their time. They're very generous people. They're just not Christ followers. Don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They don't tithe. They don't serve. They don't do anything he's commanded them to do. They'll volunteer, but they don't follow. And he's saying, if you serve me, you must follow me. And so that's the reason we serve. Don't get the cart before the horse. Go to letter E on your outline. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Verses 27 to 36. Now is my soul troubled. means agitated back and forth. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So what Jesus is saying, I've come this moment and what's facing me is death and I've got one of two options of what I can pray. I can pray, dear God, save me from this cross where I don't have to go. Or I can pray, dear God, may you be glorified. And I choose to pray, may you be glorified. He had two choices. He didn't pray, save me. He prayed, may your name be glorified. What was troubling him? Well, I've heard pe- people say, well, he was, he was afraid of, of, I mean, the death of a crew, Roman crucifixion is horrible. Yeah, it could have been part of it. But I think two things bothered him. If you look at the rest of Scripture, two things bothered him. Number one, being separated from the Father. He had never for a moment in eternity been separated from Father God. They were one. But whenever he would die on the cross, because he became sin, that separation would be there. And it broke his heart. And the second thing that troubled him was becoming our sin. He didn't just bear it. He became it. Think of all the sins in the world right now. Think of all the sins that have ever been committed in the world, in the history of the world. Some of, think of some of the atrocities that people have done and some things they do that just turns our stomach and he became that the holiness of God became that that would be troubling 
And those are the two things that troubled him the most. And that's why he wanted to say, God, save me from this. But instead he cried out, Father, may your name be glorified. And as soon as he prayed that, something odd happened. Verse 28, a voice came from heaven that said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is the third time a voice boomed from heaven audibly. I mean, you heard a voice audibly from the sky three times. At his baptism once, at the transfiguration once, and right here. Three times a voice boomed and those around him heard it. Because verse 29 says, the crowd that stood there heard it and said that it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken. So whenever God boomed the voice, affirming his son, it sounded like thunder to some people, sounded like an angel to some. And the voice says, my name has been glorified. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Ruler of the world, that one phrase, always a reference to Satan every time you see it in Scripture. Ruler of the world, Satan has been cast out. Verse 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, both elevated and exalted, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Who just asked about to see him? Non-Jews. When I'm lifted up, everybody, Jew and non-Jew, can come to me. I'll draw all people to myself. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he's going to die. Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So put yourself in the place of the Jews. You've heard from the time you were very small that one day Messiah's going to come. And whenever he does, he is going to throw off the hated Romans and the Jews are going to rule the world. And they will be under no one else's domination. They will be in charge and his kingdom will rule forever and he will never ever die. You're told that in 2 Samuel 7. You're told that in Daniel 7. You're told that in Psalm 89. And you've heard that since the time you're that high. And now a man shows up who's raised Lazarus and you think is the Messiah. And he's had the triumphal entry and he starts talking about his death. And you're going, wait a minute. The Messiah doesn't die. He reigns forever and ever. So they're scratching their heads in verse 34. The crowd did and said, time out, we have a question. Uh, we've heard our whole lives that Christ remains forever. And we thought you were him. If not you, who? And Jesus answered verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Children of God saved. 
Now let's go to letter F on your outline, the belief of the, un, of the people in verse 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed what you heard from us and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is chapter 6, verse 10 of Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see what the, with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. What he's saying is, even though the Messiah comes, there will always be those people who don't believe. Today... You may know some people, they, are, they refuse to be saved, and you're going, why in the world are, do they keep refusing to be saved? It's nuts. Why would they do that? And Jesus said some of them's hearts would always be hardened. It's going to, always going to happen. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let me just say a quick word right here. Folks, we still have those people around. There are still those people that want to believe in Christ. They want to be saved, but they're afraid of what people will say. And they, they are afraid of the glory of man more than they are of the glory of God. It happened then. They really wanted to believe. But they are scared of the Pharisees, scared of what people would say. And there's still people like that today. Last section, and we'll close. Letter G on your outline, Jesus came to save the world. Now, as we start in verse 44, these are the final words that Jesus spoke to the public in the Gospel of John. And Jesus cried out, verse 44, and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In other words, in his humanity, that's why he came. As God one day, he will judge the world, but right now he's coming to save them. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, folks, the very last thing Jesus said to the public was, you got to believe in me. If you believe in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. Believing in me is believing in God. I am God. I am the Messiah. You've got to believe in me. And I know many of you have believed in Christ. I have believed in him. I believe he's the only Savior of the world, and many of you do as well. Many watching by live stream do, but maybe some of you don't. And maybe watch some of you watching don't believe that yet. You've got to come to the point of belief in Christ. Otherwise, he said, you don't have eternal life. And one day you face the Father as the judge. 
That's why it's important to receive Christ now. Next week, in, uh, we'll go to chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and Judas betrays him. Questions or comments before we close? If you go to the microphones quickly and questions or comments that you may have. Anybody? Yes. Great question. Question is, how long did Lazarus live afterwards? We really don't know. There's really no tradition that says how long. We don't know if he died soon after. We don't know if he lived a number of years. We know he wasn't alive when John wrote in 85, but that had been 55 more years after he was resurrected. So we really don't have any way of, of knowing. Good question. We just, we just really don't know. So, yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. For those who may not have heard, in John chapter 11, verse 2, Mary, at, at, when it's described as the one who anointed Jesus' feet, but she didn't anoint it until chapter 12. And that's exactly right. The reason is John's writing this after the whole story has played out. 55 years later, and so he's writing back, and he's describing chapter 11 because he already knows what happened in chapter 12. Oh, by the way, that was the same Mary that anointed his feet. We, didn't, we don't get to it until chapter 12, but yeah, he's writing, looking back at the whole story 55 years later. Absolutely. All right, good to see you tonight. We'll close there. We'll pick up with chapter 13 next week. Father, we thank you and, and praise you tonight for Jesus, for who he is. We believe him to be the only Savior of the world, the Messiah. And God, I just pray for those around us, even in our families, those that don't believe, that you would draw them to yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray you'll do that even this week. Thank you again, Jesus, for, for uh, uh, giving your life for us. And help us to serve you and follow you both. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.